0: Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome back to another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Just one quick question Do you believe? Last week we jumped in with Mothman, and this week we're back with yet another extraterrestrial story, uh, and I don't want to spoil it. Just a quick reminder if you like the show and you like what we do, one of the best ways to help our show reach the ears of new listeners is by leaving a review. You can review our show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify now. So if you have a moment, let us know what you think. And without further ado, this week's episode. In
1: 1993, director Robert Lieberman released Fire in the Sky, a science fiction mystery film about UFOs and alien abductions. Though the film was met with mixed reviews from critics, many viewers praised the depictions of the aliens themselves, the inside of their spacecraft, and the horrifying abduction. Esteemed critic Roger Ebert said, they convincingly depict a reality I haven't seen in the movies before. And for once, I did believe that I was seeing something truly alien and not just a set director's daydreams. Perhaps this disconcerting effect and what critic James Berardinelli described as stunning, gut-wrenching realism can be attributed to the movie's source material. The film was based on a book called The Walton Experience, a first-hand account of alien abduction written by Travis Walton. His ordeal began in 1975 when Walton was working as a logger in Arizona. While out on the job one night, he spied some unusual lights in the sky. His curiosity got the better of him and he decided to investigate. What followed was an out-of-this-world nightmare of cosmic proportions that became one of the most highly publicized abductions in American history. This is the story of one man's brush with something truly alien, and what can happen when you reach out to touch the fire in the sky. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. It was November 5th, 1975, and a seven-man logging crew was working a job in the Sitgreaves National Forest. Among this group was 22-year-old Travis Walton, there to work in the lush, dense forest, collect a paycheck, and go home. He had no idea that this simple job would change his life forever. It had been a long day of work, the sun was dipping down out of sight, and as the land grew dark around the men, the temperature was starting to drop. It was time to pack it in for the day, So they gathered their things and piled into the truck, packed in tight like sardines for the drive. As the truck rumbled along, the men noticed something peculiar. A bright light, cutting through what should have been almost total darkness. As the truck got closer to the light, they could make out its source. Something was hovering in the air, about twenty feet above a clearing. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was a large, saucer-shaped object emitting a high-pitched buzzing sound and giving off a bright light that stung their eyes to look at. The truck slowed as the driver, a man named Mike Rogers, struggled to take in what he was seeing. None of them knew quite what to say about it, but they had certainly never seen anything like it before. The silent awe inside the truck was broken by the sound of someone pulling the handle on one of the doors and stepping out into the night. It was Travis Walton moving almost without thinking as his coworkers watched in shock. Should they stop him, call out to him? What do you think you're doing? Mike finally hissed. But Travis didn't listen. He kept inching closer to the lights. They couldn't tell if this thing was dangerous, but by the time they thought to pull Travis back in, he was already running towards the flying saucer. Travis couldn't explain why he needed to get closer to the strange thing in the sky. He just did. Something in his gut was pulling him towards it, a magnetic force that he couldn't resist. It looked beautiful, strange, perfect and terrifying, lights dancing around in the clearing, something futuristic in the middle of an almost untouched forest. As he neared the aircraft, he wondered if it would take off, startled by his presence, but it didn't. It stayed right where it was. He kept walking until he was standing right underneath the thing, looking up in an open-mouthed trance. There was an almost imperceptible shift in the air, like the crackle before lightning strikes, and then a blinding beam of blue-green light shot down from the ship, engulfing Travis in its searing glow. Travis flew into the air knocked back over ten feet by an invisible force that tossed his body like a ragdoll. He collapsed to the ground and, terrified and unable to think beyond the panicked impulse of, what if I'm next? The truck full of loggers sped off and left him there, crumpled in a heap in the dirt. They would feel shame over leaving their friend behind later, but right now, there was no room for anything but fear. Their hearts were lodged in their throats, there was a ringing in their ears, and the truck nearly veered off of the road as Mike tried to steer with shaking hands. He drove the truck for about a quarter mile, then stopped it to catch his breath. In the rearview mirror, he could see the lights of the ship floating up, higher and higher until they blinked out of sight. Whatever it was, it was gone now. With the apparent threat having disappeared, the men were suddenly overcome with guilt. What had they left Travis to face on his own? Would they find him still lying there, bent and mangled beyond recognition? Had the light burnt him, seared his skin like a blast of fire? They couldn't keep driving until they knew what had happened to him. They had to go back. Mike cranked the engine and turned the truck around. They made the short drive in silence, unsure of what awaited them. Finally, they saw it. There was the clearing Travis had wandered into. It was so much darker without the hovering lights, they had to squint through the shadows, turn the truck's headlights towards the area to get a better look. The ground was disturbed where Travis had walked across it, and there was the spot where he had fallen, but Travis was gone. No corpse, no blood, no bits and pieces of charred flesh. Travis Walton had disappeared into thin air. He was officially declared a missing person, and a thorough investigation began, Local residents put together a search party, combing the forest for any signs of the man, while police began to suspect foul play. There was no direct evidence of homicide. It's difficult to prove murder without a body, but clearly something horrible had happened to Travis Walton, and they wanted to find out who was responsible. Naturally, suspicion fell on the six other loggers who had been with him that night. They were each brought in for interrogation and were given polygraph tests to determine the veracity of their stories. But each man recounted the events the same way, down to the last detail, and none of them failed the polygraph. They were eventually cleared of suspicion, and the hunt for Travis continued. Five days after he had first disappeared, Travis's brother-in-law, Grant, received an unexpected phone call late at night. He answered and heard Travis's voice on the other end. He was calling from a phone booth in Hebrew, Arizona, and he had no idea how he got there. Grant and his brother Duane picked up a shivering, confused, ten pounds later Travis and brought him home. One question lingered. Where had Travis gone? And what the hell happened to him? He sought help from a hypnotherapist to unlock the mystery of the lost time and what he found was something no one could have predicted. If his memories were to be believed, he had been abducted and kept captive for five days by aliens. Up next, we learn about what Travis experienced during those five long days, the debate that surrounds his account of events, and the legacy of his abduction that endures to this day. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash And now, back to our show. Travis Walton slowly stirred back to consciousness, his body racked with pain. With no other context, his first instinct was to think he must be in the hospital. It made sense. He had lost consciousness out in the woods and now he was waking up on some kind of examination table in a great deal of pain and while struggling to make sense of his surroundings. The place felt a bit strange. The air was hot, humid, heavy with moisture and a musty smell. He felt that he still had his jacket on, sweating through it in the heat. Why hadn't a nurse or one of the doctors taken it off? Perhaps there hadn't been time. They needed to tend to his injuries as quickly as possible. Fighting through the pain and exhaustion, he opened his heavy eyelids and looked down at his body. There was something pressing down on his chest. A device hooked up to his torso from his armpits to his stomach. He couldn't tell what it was, only that it was made from a smooth, dark gray material. At the edge of his view, he could make out the hazy image of his doctors wearing white surgical masks, caps, and orange gowns. Then he got a better look at them. If he had had the strength, he would have screamed. These beings were humanoid, but there was something deeply wrong about them. Their skin was completely white, as if bleached of all pigment. They had no hair on their faces or bodies, no eyebrows, not even eyelashes. They stared down at him with large brown eyes set deep in their inscrutable faces. Their heads were massive, disproportionately large atop their small bodies. He could see three of them in total, and though he knew he was outnumbered, his terror won and he lashed out and hit one of the alien beings with the back of his arm. It fell into the one next to it, feeling the bizarre sponginess of its body Though he was weak, his blow was effective enough to distract the creature. Travis pushed himself to his feet, the device on his chest falling to the floor with a crash. He stumbled backwards unsteady on his feet and knocked into a bench covered in surgical tools he had never seen before. All the while, he kept his eyes locked on the creatures, afraid to let them out of his sight. He had no idea what they might do to him, how they might retaliate now that he'd fought back, but his body was still weak from his encounter with the beam of light in the clearing or from whatever they had done to him while he was unconscious, and his legs buckled beneath him. As he struggled to stay upright, the three pale figures approached him with unblinking eyes and outstretched hands. With a roar like a wild animal caught in a trap, Travis grabbed for a makeshift weapon. His grasping hands found a long cylinder made from something like glass. He tried to break it to make a sharp edge he could use to fight but it wouldn't shatter. Still, he swung the cylinder wildly, trying to hold the entities at bay. Seemingly unperturbed by his outburst, they continued to advance towards him. They never spoke, never made a sound. They simply watched him and approached him with slow patience. Would he be able to fight them? They were smaller than him, but what if they had weapons on them? Or some sort of hidden powers? He couldn't tell what they had up their sleeves. Then suddenly, the three aliens turned and left the room. Travis was alone, with only the heavy pounding of his heart, the cylinder still clutched in his hand, and a million unanswered questions. The rest of his time aboard the craft was made of fragments, little pieces of memory as he drifted in and out of consciousness. He was awake for only two or three hours in total the whole time he was aboard the ship, and he couldn't say for certain what was real, what was a dream, and what he had blacked out from the sheer trauma and stress. At one point during his time with the creatures, though, he caught a glimpse outside. He peered through a window and saw stars, infinite stars dotting the inky black expanse of space. He couldn't see the sun or any of the planets he recognized, not red Mars or Saturn's rings or the comforting green and blue of his own home planet. He was in space, he knew that much, but he had gone far beyond the familiar solar system he had learned about in school. He wondered if he would ever see it again. But the nightmare did come to an end. It ended as all nightmares eventually do, with someone waking up. Travis opened his eyes and found himself lying on the street, the pavement cold beneath his stomach. He looked up and caught a glimpse of a white light flickering off, followed by the outline of a round silver saucer floating in the air above the road before it careened off into the sky and disappeared. As it flew off, it created a breeze that shook the pine trees and blew the dry leaves on the ground into a flurry. Then it was gone, and Travis was alone once more. He was on the highway, that much he could tell, but there was no one around to ask for help. He ran down the road looking for someone, anyone, but there were no passing cars, and no one would answer when he knocked on their doors. Finally, he spotted an Exxon station and ran to the payphone. Thankfully, the operator didn't require a dime and he gave his sister's number as quickly as he could. His brother-in-law answered, and after some pleading and insistence that this was not in fact a cruel joke, he came to pick Travis up. At first, all Travis could talk about was what he had seen, the creatures, their pale faces, their horrible staring eyes. Then he felt his face, and was shocked to find nearly a week's worth of facial hair had grown there. He remarked on the fact he had shaved only that morning and wondered what they had done to make his beard grow so quickly. His brother Duane was the one to break the news to him, saying, Travis, you've been missing for five days. Travis Walton told his story in a book titled The Walton Experience, published in 1978. From there, his story quickly picked up traction, He was profiled by the National Enquirer, who awarded him with a cash prize for the best UFO case of the year. In the decades since, he has spoken at UFO conferences, including one of his own in Arizona called the Skyfire Summit. He has also been the subject of several documentaries, each attempting to uncover more details about the story. Even after so much time has passed, there's still more to discuss, more layers to peel back, and Travis Walton isn't going anywhere. He told the Huffington Post in 2017 that the spacecraft had not just affected him, but it had changed the land around his abduction site permanently. About 15 years later, it was discovered that the trees nearest to where the UFO hovered had been producing wood fiber at 36 times the rate it had been in the 85 years before that. More recently, a complete core sampling revealed that this thickened growth was only on the side of the trees towards or in the direction that the craft had been. Of course, as is the case with any claims of paranormal activity, there have been many skeptics over the years with their own takes of the Walton story. Michael Shermer posits that Walton and his team created the UFO story as a convenient excuse that just got too out of hand. The logging team had a deadline of November 10th to finish their logging job. And if they failed, then their pay would be docked by 10% off the original contracted amount. The only way for them to get out of this would be an act of God or an unpredictable disaster of some kind that prevented them from meeting their deadline. Why would they fake an alien abduction instead of something more, well, believable? Travis and his brother Duane were longtime UFO enthusiasts, talking about the possibility of alien life all the time. The two brothers even had a deal that, if aliens ever came for one of them, he would insist they take the other as well so they could share in the experience. Shermer also points out that, only two weeks before Walton's supposed abduction, NBC aired the made-for-TV movie The UFO Incident, which was based on the 1961 abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. According to aviation journalist Philip Klass, who investigated the Walton case for his 1988 book UFO Abductions, none of the Walton's family members or co-workers were concerned for his safety during the five days in which he was unaccounted for. His brother Duane even said, He's not even missing. He knows where he's at, and I know where he's at. Walton did pass a polygraph test provided by a UFO organization, but Klaas points out in his work that Walton gave the examiner the questions ahead of time. Polygraph tests are considered relatively unreliable since they measure psychological responses that can be impacted by other factors than deliberate deception. Still, it was notable when many years later, Travis Walton appeared on the reality television show Moment of Truth and was this time determined to be lying about his abduction. Shermer reached out to Walton for his side of the story and received this response. I normally would not have ever agreed to be on such a show. After my fellow crewmen and I passed the polygraph tests from the Arizona State Police Polygraph Examiner, I wrote in my book that I was done addressing that aspect of it. There the matter rested until last year when I received the bad news from my employer of 11 years that over 100 of those most recently hired, which included me, would be permanently laid off. Coincidentally, I came home that day to receive a phone call from the moment of truth inviting me to be a contestant with the possibility of winning up to $100,000. I'm no fool. I knew that the show's public lure was to familiarize the audience with the contestant's friends and family, and then shockingly disgrace him with a key failed question. I wrote to several friends about my misgivings. The examiner was their man, with a vested interest in giving his employer the scandalous Jerry Springer-type entertainment that has been the show's stock in trade, to say nothing of saving them from awarding any prize money. I was made even more uneasy to learn that, up to then, very few had won much of anything. The outrageous demand set down in their contract was the clincher. I declined their offer. But they persisted, modifying the standard contract to satisfy my objections. They said the rules were being changed to ensure more prizes would be awarded. My looming layoff pushed me to reconsider. I inquired as to whether good, accepted modern polygraph methods were being used. They assured me that was the case. I should have known better. But I figured all I had to do was tell the truth. Even if I had to make public something embarrassing like a personal business or a marital mistake and I would win top prize. I didn't become aware of the shocking truth about the polygraph procedure they were using until it was too late. It did no good to tell them what I'd written in my book, page 322, years earlier, that the American Polygraph Association Standards and Principles of Practice Item No. 5 states, A member shall not provide a conclusive decision or report based on chart analysis without having collected at least two separate charts in which each relevant question is asked on each chart. A chart is one presentation of the question list. There were many other violations of accepted procedure. We came back home and my wife had me retested with the most rigorous new tests we could find, in New Mexico, where it is stringently regulated by the state because the results are admissible in court there. A firm highly recommended by other examiners, one that does work for the Albuquerque Police Department, the New Mexico State Prison, and the U.S. Marshal's Office. The most accepted methods on state-of-the-art computerized equipment. I passed two different new tests flawlessly. Debate about the reliability of polygraph tests aside, There are many skeptics who have come up with scientific explanations for the experience of alien abductions in general. Psychologists have suggested that alien abductees tend to be people prone to elaborate fantasy and confusing these fantasies with reality, either due to childhood trauma or hypnotic suggestibility. Hypnosis, in particular, is often attributed to creating false memories in patients, such as in the aforementioned Betty and Barney Hill case. Alien abduction stories have also been attributed to more physiological causes, including sleep paralysis and temporal lobe sensitivity. Sleep paralysis causes feelings of dread, immobility, and a sensation of pressure on one's chest, all sensations associated with alien abductions. Temporal lobe sensitivity, or the theory that some people's temporal lobes are more vulnerable to magnetic frequencies that can cause hallucinations, also produces similar experiences to supposed abductions. At the end of the day, We will never truly know for sure what happened to Travis Walton that fateful night, or during the five fraught days after. Even Travis himself has admitted to being somewhat unsure, knowing his memories were colored by his emotional state and the stress he went through. These days, Travis looks back on his former abduction with much kinder eyes. He now believes that he wasn't taken because of any malice or ill intent, but that it was more like an ambulance call. It sounds frightening when he recounts the details, but Walton believes the absolute terror that I experienced at the time might not have been warranted. He still says that he wishes none of this had ever happened to him, but there's no changing the past. Now, in his own words, it's kind of been my mission to see if I can help people to understand that this is real. Whatever really happened out there, whatever version of the story you believe, that night in the forest changed Travis Walton's life and the way we imagine the possibility of alien life forever.
0: This week's episode was written by Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator is Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician is the incredibly talented Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. This is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show.